Hello and welcome to The Good Robot Andes Season 7 Episode 3. My name is Andy Balaam and this is... Andy Cockerell. And joining us tonight we have... Francis Bontempo. Welcome, Fran. And the film that we are talking about tonight is... We're not talking about a film tonight. What? No. So uh, so I think I'm probably hosting tonight, although maybe I'm not. Maybe we're co-hosting. Yeah. Are we being? Are we just going to argue with each other and Fran? Probably. Fran be I'll, I'll try. Yeah, probably. Try yeah. Keep you two under control. Yes. <laughs> Bring some decorum to the proceedings. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so tonight we're going to talk about, I think we... Did we allude to this on the last pod, or maybe we yeah. maybe we talked about it after the pod? But well, we did a bit on the pod. You've been reading a book called Progress, Progress, yeah. which I have listened to the entirety of as an audio book. It's by Johann Norberg. Yeah, um, which every time I heard his name, I thought of Nordberg from uh, Police um, <laughs> Naked Gun, <laughs> famously played by O.J. Simpson. Oh right, he wasn't a nice man. Isn't a nice man. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, we're going to talk about. I think you're going to talk about how the world is fantastic and getting better, and I'm going to say yes, but what about yeah. all this stuff? Yeah. So this is a, what, what. What are we calling it? Um, we're calling it hope versus hate. Hope versus hate. So it's, this is a podcast about the future I guess. Uh, and the present as well. I think, and maybe the past. It's just. A, it's only about yeah. the past, the present, and the future. So quite a lot of things then, really. Yeah. But let's start off with some, uh, yeah, any some, other business. We've got some of the other business. Yeah, uh, I think for the first time in a long time, I'm quite excited about the Academy Awards. Um, so why are you excited about them? Well, because last night, for the first time in Academy Awards history, a film not in the English language won Best Picture. And the director of said film won Best Director, which is quite something, considering that I think most of the members of the Academy of motion picture arts and scientists are old white men who probably don't watch films with subtitles, which is, this is a South Korean film called Parasite. It looks good. I saw a trailer. It looks really good. Um, so I was quite surprised. I didn't watch the, the broadcast because I don't have any media in which to watch it on, but I was very surprised when I excitedly, well, actually, I usually open it with a heavy heart and think, okay, what won this year? Uh, is it going to be all Joker? Wow. Is it going to be Joker? Is it going to be some awful, you know, is it going to be Tarantino? But no. Um, other other thing of note is that Roger Deakins has won another um, Oscar for Best Cinematography for 1917. 1917 yeah. He's famously been nominated like 20 times. He finally won for Blade Runner, the Blade Runner sequel. Right. And now he's won another one. So uh, I think notably... These are two years that the guy who usually wins, who's Emmanuel, Emmanuel Lubetsky, wasn't even nominated because he didn't make a movie. So, oh. <laughs> so that's probably well, if why If he'd been won. nominated and hadn't made a movie, I'd smell a rat. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, it's like, here he is again, but he hasn't made anything. <laughs> give, him the, give him the best cinematography. Just give, him it, give, it, give it to him anyway. Um, so that, I'm quite excited about the Oscars this year. That was, that was good news. Um, Joaquin Phoenix made another impassioned powerful speech about equality and representation like he did at the BAFTAs mm -hmm. um, which was cool I like the fact that he's using his platform as a force for good um, rather than being a you know entitled white bloke a force for hope rather than hate indeed yes 
Okay. Um, okay. So that that's the Oscars. The the other any any other business is that cinematic legend, uh, Kirk Douglas died. Now he was a hundred and three, so and he hadn't made a movie in a long time. But a legend has passed. I think we can probably agree. Um, if you can remember any any movies that he was in, like Spartacus. The Vikings. I don't think I've seen um, any things he's been in. Okay, so um, there's a movie called Ace in the Hole by Billy Wilder. But um, he credited himself with breaking the um, the uh, what do they call it? Uh, the, the, co- the commies the reds under the bed thing. Yeah, the blacklist. Yeah. So there was a, a screenwriter called Dalton Trumbo, who he enlisted to write Spartacus for Stanley Kubrick, um, and he would not get involved in the movie unless Dalton Trumbo was credited with his proper name. And uh, that broke the blacklist and basically broke the whole McCarthy stuff wide open. So I I think him claiming credit for it is probably quite, you know, he's probably fairly justified in doing that. So I think a guy on the right side of history, really. Uh, So that's Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's my any other business. It's definitely a legend. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Had a good chin. Yes. Park a bike in that chin (laughs) (laughs) if you wanted to. (laughs) Good strong chin with a big old. And his son Michael Douglas is probably most notable in the eighties and nineties of being of playing, being like the standard bearer for masculinity under threat. Is that he played several roles where he was kind of a confused alpha male not really knowing what his place in the world was. Things like Falling Down and Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct are three examples of that kind of character that he played. I love Falling Down. It's mm. great, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so there we go. Kurt Douglas. Let's move on. Cool. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I, I have no idea how we're going to manage this podcast, so we'll just see how it goes. Okay. So you you uh, you said to me today you've got some post-it notes you've got some notes to talk about from from the book. Yeah, well I have a I have a large number of post-it notes oh, inserted okay. into a book. <laughs> so should, should, do you want to give listener a sort of and and Fran who maybe hasn't read the book probably hasn't read. The I book. haven't read it deliberately, okay. so I've come to this with an open mind. Okay, um, give, give give us an idea of what it's all about. Okay, okay. Well, first of all, Fran, would you say? If I asked you whether you're an optimist or a pessimist or what, would, what would you say? It depends. <laughs> so that's a pessimist, right? <laughs> so, um, uh, okay. So this book, I mean, this is this book isn't hopefully isn't the only um, reason why I think any of these things, but it's uh, it, it contains a lot of evidence, uh, like reasons why things are not just monstrously bad okay so um uh it's often been said or it's sometimes been said that the the kind of religion or the worldview of the west is this idea of progress so i don't think it's a coincidence that uh what's his name johan norberg chose the name progress for his his book um he he obviously believes in this religion and he, pre- he presents quite a lot of evidence um for what he means by that, and the fact that uh, a lot of things are getting better. So I know that uh, listener probably feels, like I do most days, like everything is falling apart and uh, um, uh, nothing is good anymore. 
I would suggest that that's like a view from the last five years. And if you take a longer view, um, there's a much more cheery story. So what he does, Johan Norberg, is he talks about various different areas of the life or the world and ways in which they've got better. So he talks about food, uh, sanitation, life expectancy, poverty. Is this a Life of Brian sketch? Sorry. <laughs> Violence. That's not Life of Brian. That's um, Monty Python, the sketches. Um, the environment, which, by the way, is where we might get into a bit of debate. Literacy, freedom, equality, and what he calls the next generation, which I think he basically means children. So um, I'm going to give you an example of, of some of the facts that he uses. Okay. And then maybe we'll talk a bit about it. So he starts off with food. Um, and his, his overall point, which I really hadn't realised, but I think is absolutely amazing, is that until really recently, um, even though there weren't half as many people in the world as there are now, there was, there was literally not enough food to feed everyone. Um, so it was it was like a normal situation that some people would starve because there wasn't enough food. Yeah, starve to death frequently. Yeah. So he and that talks wasn't about, just because of inequality. Yeah. It was because there just wasn't enough food. He talks about there being famines in every continent of the world up until, as you say, fairly recently. I, I have I have literally no issue with anything that he says here. I think that he, the things that he talks about with industrialized farming and fertilizer are all absolutely incredible when he when he talks about famine in Europe which i hadn't mm. even considered being a thing yeah but was a thing until relatively recently wherein if a community's crop failed then you'd have no food and you have to go begging in the city so he's one day so he's got a graph he's got loads of statistics he's got this graph for of um undernourishment as a percentage of world population. So num percentage of the world population that are malnourished, basically, because they haven't got enough food. In 1945, that was 50% of the world's population. That's incredible, isn't it? And it, there's a smooth uh, graph towards 2015. In 2015, it's just over 10. It's something like 11% of the world's population. Yeah, that is amazing. I, mean, I suppose the, 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 it might be slightly skewed there that in 1945... It's just post-Second World War. In fact, Second World War is still raging in some parts of the world. Um, and that food supplies are, are, have not, don't actually get back to normal in this country until the 1950s. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think the story makes sense over a longer term. Though. Yeah. Go on, Fran. Yeah, it does, yeah. Um, Were you going to say something, Fran? Um, I'm thinking all kinds of things. I wonder... What would happen if you broke it down by regions and over time? Yeah. I, was, yeah. I was reading something recently. It was a sci-fi book, and I, can't, I tend to read three books at once. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> but it mentioned about people being fat but starving, which was talking about there being food around, but it's not the right sort of food. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that you can be malnourished in a lot of different ways. I... I can't recall which book that was from damn it but yes fat but starving a thing anyway interesting, interesting. yeah uh, one thing that one thing that struck stuck with me actually since I read since I listened to the book he describes a famine in China and somebody writing down what it's like to be involved in that um, and 
people being so malnourished that when someone when one of them dies they tear open the corpse to see if there's any undigested food inside it mm-hmm. just horrendous and it, that stuck with me that image has just stuck with me since then as a kind of mm. this is how far humans will go if they're absolutely ravenously hungry um and we have humans have put paid mostly to that kind of famine but it's still occurring humans sometimes cause that kind of famine deliberately by torching farmland and things or famines are tool of war mm. but isn't yes. all down to natural disasters there's a lot of politicking behind it yeah, I don't know enough about Irish history, but I'm sure if somebody was involved who did, then mention potato famines and some of the politics behind that. Yeah. 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 Certainly true. And actually, later in the book, he talks about war and, and things like that. So another fact from the food chapter. Um, in the mid-19th century, the average daily calorific intake in Western Europe was between 2,000 and 2,500. Um, which is below what the average is in Africa today. In 1950, it was already around 3,000. Wow. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I thought, I thought you were supposed to eat about... Well, depending, on, depending on how old you are and how tall you are and, and what whether sex you, you are, yeah. And whether yeah. you're working yes. on the farmland or in a factory yeah. for eight hours a day or sitting on your backside programming yeah. computers so indeed or watching films or you know it depends on what you're doing yeah, yeah yes. exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and then people got a lot taller so um um it's not just a 19 since 1945 thing right this is a, a long-term mm. trend um the the amount of food available thanks to that bloke whose um name i've forgotten who's supposed to be the person who saved the most lives in history oh borlaug or borlaug yes B-O-R-L-A-U-G. Um, he's the first person to save a billion lives. And he formulated artificial fertilizer, is that correct? So I think he basically like got people to use it. I don't know whether he invented it, but he went round a load of countries saying, look, use this fertilizer, yeah. you'll grow more food. And then suddenly fewer people starved. Yes, because your crop fails. It's less likely that your crop is going to fail. With this yeah, fertilizer. So when he, that's right. When he won the Nobel Peace Prize, U.S. Senator Rudy Boschwitz said, Dr. Norman Borlaug is the first person in history to save a billion human lives. That's incredible. Yeah. That's well done. So, okay, what's next? Okay, that was food. Okay. So, food's getting better. Food is agree? getting better. Disagree. Yeah, I agree. Food is getting better. It's um, plentiful. It's varied. It's uh, very good quality for the most part. I mean, you know, there's plenty of junk around, but you can you can eat very well. You can get there's food. enough food. Yeah, that, not notwithstanding. Food. On average, that, depending on where you are, because there are still some pockets where that's not true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. So that's if true. we if we distributed food fairly, we actually have enough food to feed everyone now. Yeah. Which wasn't the case through most of history. No. And that's mainly because uh, prior to artificial fertilizer and you know the world being what it is now, people would communities would feed themselves. Um, yeah. So you grow uh, enough yeah. for you, except in the years when crops failed. Yes, and then you have to go and beg in the city. And you starve. And you starve. Yeah, exactly. 
he also talks about migration of peoples during that time. Is that when the crop fails, that causes a huge migration of people across the country, which causes problems in itself for infrastructure and, um, you know, places a burden on other people. He also touches on um, some of the negative effects of fertiliser in mm-hmm. the fact that it, um, uh, land can be over-farmed and that it can be a polluting effect. Yes, he talks but about blue-green algae. Right. Yeah. What I hadn't really understood was how much of a technology thing it is that, that we have enough food. I kind of just thought that having enough food was a normal state for humans. Yeah. But it is down to technology. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder whether there's a point to dig in on some of the history of some of the fertilisers we've used and pesticides and they've ended up killing us off, causing mm. strange strains of cancer. And you just mentioned the algal plumes and things. So, yes, yeah, perhaps, I don't know, there's going to be pros and cons to everything and it depends, as I said at the beginning, but there might end up being some fallout of some of this and we haven't even started discussing some of the... Um, genetically modified things that are going on and some people's fears around that and some people embracing them and what do you make of beef tomatoes have they really got beef in if you're vegan and all these <laughs> other questions but we were going to yeah. move on from food so i'm going to sit yeah, on yeah. it depends on that one still yeah so i think let's keep these these ideas going because um i think it's going to come up again like uh you know, technology has has been beneficial or possibly even necessary but that doesn't make it Hundred percent good. Um, okay, so he moves on to sanitation. Um, so this is an important statistic. one, actually. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. This is a very important one. Mm-hmm. So uh, he includes uh, access to clean water. So the population of the proportion of the world population with access to an improved water source has increased from fifty-two to ninety-one percent between nineteen eighty and twenty fifteen. That's incredible. Since 1990, 2.6 billion people have gained access to an improved water source, which I guess basically means clean water. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so. Which means that 285,000 more people got safe water every day over 25 years. It didn't yeah, say how many people got kept the same or things got worse for, so there might be some pros and cons in there. Mm. That was a specifically worded statistic, but no, of note, yeah. interesting. So it, it, he talks quite a lot about proportions of people. Right. And that, that does make me wonder, because obviously the, the population has increased a lot. Uh, from time to time, he talks about absolute numbers as well. And sometimes okay. <laughs> those go the same way and sometimes they don't. Uh, and a lot of these improvements, if I remember listening to this correctly, were to do with the simple fact or the simple act of moving your waste far away from your clean water mm. is that people were contaminating their, their clean water with waste. Um, and it was a, a matter of education uh, to go into remote communities where they, where they were having outbreaks of, of stomach bugs and nasty things like that and saying to them, mm. well, you need to move your waste far away from your clean water. And then things suddenly get better. Yeah, um, and you could, and, that, yeah. and that that goes to one of his points that we'll talk about, which is that a lot of these so-called progress things work together. 
So if you have more literacy and less child labour, mm. so people have more time for education, then you're able to spread information better about what's safe and healthy. Now, okay, so um, will we get onto the subject of child labour? Because I have a I have a point on that one. Okay, we will. We good. Will. Okay. You have to you have to hold your keep your powder dry. Keep your powder dry. <laughs> So in 1980, no more than 24% of the world's population had access to proper sanitation facilities. By 2015, this had increased to 68%. Hmm. That's impressive. It's not enough, though, is it? No, it's... What did you, what did you say? 68%? 68%. Yeah, still not that high. How, I mean, it's, it's, did it's def- a massive improvement. Did he define proper? Um, not in this paragraph. <laughs> more postings. <laughs> we need more postings. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I've I've noticed adverts around. Sometimes you, you know you take up a, a comfort break if you're going on the journey along the motorway, and they say, "Give money to this charity, and we're installing toilets in this village." But then they're using pipes with water supply to sub- supply a flushing toilet, and they're, they're composting toilets can be perfectly clean and effective there's more than one way of doing things just wondered mm. what he meant by proper yeah that's so that is a good point yeah he's actually just later in the paragraph you see so i can still uh-huh. I can still find it he's talking about open defecation right so yes. um um he's t- he says a quarter of those in rural areas still practice open defecation although this has been reduced from 38 percent in 1990 yeah he talks in that section about uh the palace of versailles um, this is pre-kings and queens having their heads chopped off and people crapping behind curtains and things like that and just crapping in the in the corridors. I can say crap on this podcast. Yes, probably. Yeah, we're probably not even on iTunes anyway. <laughs> no. No, we are on iTunes, but I think it's perfectly yeah, not okay. For long. Not for long. Okay. Um, he talks about that. He also talks about the Great Stink, which yeah. is quite a famous event that happened in London where... The Thames was so smelly that people were passing out in the street and they had to put smelly stuff inside the Houses of Parliament to keep the MPs from, you know, vomiting all over the place. <laughs> he, he has this thing about the good old days. He opens the book by saying people yes. talk about the good old days. And he says, but were they actually that good? The good old days are now. So, yeah, he, uh, yeah okay, so here's an absolute number for you, Fran. All right. Um, Global deaths from diarrhoea have been reduced from 1.5 million in 1990 to 622,000 in 2012. Mm. Yeah, the trouble with the absolutes versus the proportions is the population's gone up. I don't know how to present the stats so I can get a clear picture of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's, it's, that, it's, that number's gone down a lot yeah, in absolute yes. terms, despite a growing population over that yes, period. Yes, yeah. But still, a lot of people are dying from something that's very preventable. Yeah, yeah but absolutely. it's it's more than halved. Yeah, o- over that twenty-two year period. Right. Yeah, yeah. And diarrhea is probably, I would have thought, not that I know anything about it, a good measure of sanitation. Yeah, or at least something that can be easily cured if it's happened as well. But that's another part mm. of supply chain stories and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, access to clean water will reduce your diarrhoea deaths and proper sanitation will reduce your infections that cause diarrhoea, right? So yes. You can... Uh, yes. Hopefully that's a that, that's a meaningful measure. Yeah, okay. 
So, yeah, I think it, what, what I take away from that is an alarming number of people don't have access to clean water and good sanitation, mm. but that things have, have changed massively over the last 20 years mm. or, or 30 years. I think sometimes we think about maybe during the 20th century things got a lot better. Certainly in the UK, they did. Um, but to see that kind of progress happening in the last 20 years... Um, suggests that this is a trend that's continuing. That's all I'm getting at. Okay. Can I throw a spanner in the works and say, what yeah. happens if people start turning into some kind of clean freak and using antibacterial gels on everything and then end up causing loads of superbugs dying off horribly? Just throwing in a, a trajectory. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's in a different place die. to clean water. But, you, yeah, the, yeah, just wanted to do my it depends thing slightly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like a like a, a regular NHS hospital that's full of superbugs, yeah. or even yeah. the public transport and where you work and the air conditioning and anyway, yes, your own yes. home. Yeah. It's a perfect. But how many deaths are there from superbugs at the moment? Um, I don't know. Nor do I. I look it up. I could look it up if I was bothered, but not many. Didn't think it would come up today. <laughs> he doesn't actually talk about that, does he, in the book? No. Superbugs. No. And uh, things like SARS, and he, d he does talk about Ebola. Okay, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. We should get onto that. Mm. And yeah, the Corona uh, listener, the, uh, as as we're recording this, the coronavirus is um, causing panic. Um, yeah, some hundreds of thousands of people have been infected, and just under a thousand people have died. Um, which is obviously a, a lot of people, but it's a lot less people than die of flu every year. Yes, it is. The, that, to do percentages, yet, I heard today it was about the same percentage of people dying. But yeah, in terms flu, of absolutes, right. yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's. I mean, it's not over yet. So for all we know, this is I just might, the beginning. Maybe yep. it might sound silly <laughs> in a few weeks when we're all dead. But anyway. I think th Probably not. The big problem with coronavirus is that people can wander around being infectious without knowing it. Mm, mm, so uh, you're infectious, but you're wandering around, you don't have a temperature, you're not showing any symptoms, but you're infecting other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's also true of a of flu, which is also a disease that kills yes. a certain proportion of people. The issue, that's not to say the flu is a lovely thing. But the thing <laughs> with flu is, is that there's a vaccine for it. Not always, because there are different types of flu, and each new vaccine they make is based on the last flu that happened, yeah. and the flu changes as we change, adapt and survive on both sides. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And loads of, loads of people die of flu, or because they caught flu every year. And, you know, that's. I'm not saying that's fine. I'm just saying we shouldn't panic about another disease that, that is similar. No, and it, and it is that's similar. It's saying. of the same family of viruses. Yeah. So, life expectancy, next chapter. This is an interesting one. So this is an interesting one because the things we talked about so far have quite a smooth trajectory. So, okay. food availability. Go on, friend. No, Okay, interesting. Shoot. Mm. So, yeah, food availability has gradually improved over the last thousands or tens of thousands of years even. Sanitation has gradually improved over the last maybe two, three hundred years. On average, I mean, obviously it's been different in different countries. Um Life expectancy, uh, according to the statistics that he's using, was flat um, for most of human history. 
And then around 1890 or 1900, it started to improve dramatically. So for most of human history, life ex average life expectancy, which obviously includes a lot of child mortality, um, is 30. So that's dragged down a lot by lots of children dying. So actually, you know, a normal human wouldn't just die at 30. A normal human would either die soon after they were born or they would live to some older age. But anyway, the average came out as about 30. But between 1900 and 2010, average life expectancy in the world went up from 30 to 70. Wow. Yeah, that's quite significant, isn't it? It's shocking. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, it, and that is skewed by people doing less dangerous jobs, <coughs> better health care. Well, I guess I think it's probably because better sanitation, like, clean water, number of children. Dying, yeah, right? yeah. Yes, yeah. Infant mortality is down significantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, later we'll probably get to that. I'm not sure it's hit in this section, but yeah, obviously lots of diseases as well, like TB and polio and things, wiped out large numbers of people. Smallpox as well. As well. That's what he's talking Vaccines about. curing people, yeah. except now all the anti-vaxxers. See, there's a, another pathway for things to go horribly wrong. And that's one of the things I want to talk about. But cool. um, there's also plague in the in, yeah. in that pre in the in the era that you're talking about. Plague wiped out successive generations in Europe. Um, yeah, it was pretty devastating. It was plague and smallpox were the two big killers in that time period. Um, and eventually plague just burnt itself out. Well, if you kill all the hosts, then you've had it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, the number of people dying of plague was shocking. Yeah. So he, he actually makes another of his points about the way these things work together mm. uh, in this chapter about life expectancy, because he talks about child mortality. Um, and he talks about the trauma that that causes to people and the damage that that does to your life prospects. Um, so I'll just read you a short section. For most of history, parents often had to bury their children. Even though people must have hardened their attitude to death when they were constantly surrounded by it, the loss of one's children is a terrible blow in any era. The horrified reaction of Charles Darwin, who lost three of his ten children, to the death of his eldest daughter Annie, shows what a tragedy tragedy it can be for any parent, no matter how common, no matter how large the family. In Sweden in the early 19th century, between 30 and 40% of all children died before their fifth birthday. That's, that's shocking, isn't it? So let me read that again. Between, so this was, in Sweden in the early 19th century, between 30 and 40% of all children died before their fifth birthday. In the early 20th century, 15% did. Mm. Today, 0.3% do. That's incredible. I mean, so a lot of that is to do with um, uh, you know, proper midwifery and you know, medicine getting involved with with childbirth um, and care and also postnatal care as well mm. Mm. is terrifically important, particularly in those first few weeks when all kinds of things can rear their heads. Um so yeah, that that's that's a really interesting stat about infant mortality just in Sweden. Presumably. Why is he picked out Sweden. Sweden? He is Swedish. Okay, well, he is Swedish. Okay. Yeah, he uses a lot of examples from Britain and and Sweden. Yeah, um, 
But I imagine he picked Sweden because Sweden right. has good statistics. Yeah, on I wonder whether that was the one that changed most dramatically or, yeah, who knows. He does, yeah, I think he talks about that early in the book to say that Sweden was not always the fantastic place that it is now. Okay. And that it, it did suffer from terrible famine and, you know, was not a great place to live at one time. That wasn't that but, long ago. But I think part of his thesis is um, that if humans get richer, things get better. Mm. And so he uses Sweden as an example of a place where the average um, prosperity is high and, and and basically wants to try and argue against this thing of that being a bad thing and basically says, no, that is a good thing, <laughs> which I can get behind. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. I mean, if if, you know, if people don't have to go through their children dying uh, it must be i mean stress is bad for the body so it you know it ruins your immune system and your your cardiovascular system is affected by stress in the long term and i should think that having a child dying and having to bury that child must be an incredibly stressful thing to happen so that will shorten your life there's going to be a knock-on effect of people possibly ending up having fewer pregnancies and then that's a knock-on effect, of course, on a woman's body as well, not just in yes. terms of the stress yeah. of a death of a child, but if you end up being pregnant every year or so, that's going to take its toll and you always have a risk of dying when you give birth, don't you? So, yeah, yeah. some knock-on yeah. effects all round. Well, even, you know, even now, you know, he, he talks about infant mortality, but even now... It is quite possible for a mother and a child to die during childbirth, even in a hospital. Yeah. So that's how risk. That's how dangerous it is. Yeah, despite the attention that we pay to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the the other knock-on effect from uh, reduced child mortality is that there's a really strong correlation between um, the the chances of your children dying and how many children you tend to have. Mm. Um, so people have much fewer children where the expectation is that they will all survive. Yes. And that means that uh, our population, our world population is no longer exploding because of that effect. Slowing down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the birth rate has already slowed down. We're just waiting for the effect of all those young people to grow up, which will, which is what's increasing our population. Now. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Though, again, different areas seem to be on slightly different trajectories, but you've the rate of rise yeah. is slowing off, I think we're saying. Yeah. On average, the, the, the birth rate is something like replacement level. Right. I think. I, wouldn't, I haven't got the stats yeah. yet. We don't know, but it's changing. Uh, so, next section is poverty. Okay. Um, so, there's loads, of, loads to say about poverty, but something that I think will come up in our conversation is... Um, uh, people in rich countries are doing okay, but what about people in poor countries? So I wanted to focus on that bit. So here's what he says about that. So um, uh, between 1960 and the 1990s, rich countries grew faster than the poor on average. Uh, and there was actually a study about it in 97 by Lant Pritchett in which he said, uh, divergence in living standards is the dominant feature of modern economic history. Mm. And that periods when poor countries rapidly approach the rich are historically rare. But um, since then, that is exactly what has happened, according to Johan. Between 2000 and 2011, 
90% of developing countries have grown faster than the US, and they've done it on average by 3% annually. In just a decade, per capita income in the world's low- and middle-income countries has doubled. That's interesting, isn't it? Presumably that's measured in dollars. I guess so. Yeah, there must, must be the same measurement. Yeah, the same currency. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, so my... So the thing that I wanted to talk about there, and the thing that he doesn't address is the gulf between rich and poor in developed countries. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the United Kingdom is the one that I live in that I know something about. And there is a growing gulf between not even rich people, but just people who are comfortably off and people who are living hand to mouth and see no hope about getting out of that. Mm. He doesn't address that at all. Really? No, he doesn't. I think I think because he's concerned primarily with um, measures like uh, do people go to school, um, do people starve, and things like that. Right. Um, and for for some large proportion of the UK population, um, at least um, people who are are not like hiding from the authorities. Mm. Um, the kids do go to school and there is enough food to not starve. But where is that food coming from? That's the question. So it is, it is frequently the case that in in the case of people who are, are not earning enough to feed their family, they have to go to a food bank to top up their, 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 the, the food in their home. And that's something that is now prevalent across the country. Yeah, and in becoming increasingly so. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that is a case of inequality, you know, driven by, driven by the fact that trickle down economics doesn't work. It's a fallacy that is still embraced as being a good thing, but doesn't actually work at all. There's been an increase in homelessness as well. It was yes. getting better, and that started getting worse. So it's beyond just people not having enough food. And a lot of young people end up sofa surfing for ages and then you're disenfranchised. You can't vote if you haven't got permanent address. It's hard That's to right. get a job. It's, yes, sir, the so-called make sure the rich keep getting richer and it's a trickle-down doesn't seem to pay off to express no. a political opinion. Well, yeah. yeah. So so the, the, these are the the things sort of building on that is that there is a great deal of inequality in the world and although people have got richer but and in developing countries you know they've seen real improvement in income and living standards in this country um you know i can't speak for anywhere else but what i hear about and what i see on the news and hear from people firsthand is that there some people are really struggling in in a country where they really shouldn't be struggling um, and that, to me, is a problem, uh, and nobody seems to have a solution for it, because the solution would be to um, to share some of the wealth around, and that isn't happening at all. In fact, it's being cut. So you know the kind of services that that people um, would would need to help them are being cut in the name of austerity. 
No, we've put an end to austerity officially, (laughs) haven't we? Uh, no, I thought it was back on the agenda. Uh, well, we, it was ended for a bit, but it made no noticeable difference as far as I could see. I think it was ended before the general election, and then after they after they got back in, it's like, no, no, we're, we're going to cut stuff again. We're coming for stuff again. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. So I don't think that. Um, yeah, I, I agree that Johan isn't really um, addressing that question. No. Um, I do think I do commend his focus on um, people starving, and like when he talks about um, the environment, he he focuses a lot on pollution in the home because people are burning things within their house. Yeah, that's that interesting. It's yeah. killing them, yeah. and that I think that's really. I know it's not the whole story, and we have to care about whether the planet is going to um, become a desert. But I also think it's really important to think about things that are directly affecting um, people today who are starving or being killed by toxic fumes. Yeah. Um, and the experience of people who are in the system in the UK um, is that there is enough food. I agree that sometimes that it, uh, that's through a food bank or something like that, and that is pretty awful, and I wish that wasn't happening. Um, but it's still better than... Uh, uh, whole areas of a country starving to death because the crops failed. Yeah, so that is a good point in that if those people couldn't afford to to feed themselves and they can't grow their own crops because they live in an apartment, they would be starving to death as they were back in the 19th century. Not that long ago, in fact. Um, So now, you know, some kind of welfare exists for people who are really struggling. Um, but I think that, to me, there has to be a better way to deal with that situation because that that those food banks are not provided by the government. No, no, that's a disgrace. Yeah, that is a disgrace. Yeah, I think Finland gives us some clues about what to do about homelessness. The, the Finland has this policy uh, where they house you first and then they sort out your problems. Yeah, that's and, that's quite something. Yeah. Um, in a lot of systems, including in the UK, there's a sense of you have to get yourself sorted, and then you and then you'll get some accommodation. And that seems the wrong way round to me. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, like I said, there's so much you can't do if you haven't got an address. But it's just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, like, you can't have a bank account. You can't vote. Uh, you can't prove your address to get a job. Can you use the NHS without an address? You have to not... say where you live so they can say if you that's your nearest doctor or not, so no. Yeah, no, you can't, yeah. Yeah, you can walk into A&E, but you can't use a GP. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't, uh, a lot of the, the new benefits regime, you can't receive benefits without a bank account. That's right, yeah. And if you can't get a bank account because you don't have an address. Homelessness has always been a problem. But now it appears to be a political problem, which is yeah, well, I, troubling. Yeah, and this, this uh, narrative of progress would indicate that homelessness should be on the way out, I would have thought, in the UK. Yes. Oh, I, I, yeah. I wonder whether we're getting a smaller but increasing pocket of people who are disenfranchised, who won't have a permanent roof on their head, who are turning towards living on barges or... 
um, vagrant styles of life living in vans who are learning to grow some of their own food. I wonder whether we're going to get an underclass of people who aren't part of the system and they'll mm. end up providing a, a bright, shiny alternative hope to the system. Growing some it's of their possible. own food, like the diggers going out and taking over some verges and planting some food that says fresh food rather than tins of food that are given away to people who are in the system. Perhaps things yeah. are pan out ways we haven't expected. But I read too many dystopian sci-fi stories, so that might be colouring my thoughts on this. Well, I only really watched The Walking Dead, so you can imagine my perspective. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I watched another four episodes last night. It's really good. Uh, what's the next? What's next on the agenda? Um, uh, more one more stat, set of stats on extreme poverty. So they they're defining extreme poverty as um, living on under one dollar ninety per day. Uh, I think that's at nineteen eighty equivalent oh, yeah, uh, I adjusted that. for inflation yeah. rates. So, um, world percentage of the population in, uh, living in extreme poverty in nineteen eighty one forty four percent. Uh, in 2015, uh, just under 10%. Interesting. That's interesting. So, I guess... Hmm. So, folks who are in this country who are going to food banks and are struggling, they presumably are on more money than that per day if they're if they're in the system yeah uh, uh, and they're on benefits they're in the yeah. system but presumably they're paying so much in rent and other bills that mm. they can't afford to do anything else so yeah, yeah. and i mean also they, as as we mentioned there's a lot of expenses to, to in uh, involved in being in the system so for example you probably need a phone that can get on the internet yep. to be able to access most services yeah, and that means you've yeah. got a monthly bill on that, or be able to afford the bus example. to get to the GPs, or so on, yeah. Yeah. or the job yeah. centre, yeah, 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 or the hospital, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So this is not to minimise um, the problem of poverty. I think it's interesting to talk about the problem of what they what he calls extreme poverty. Yeah, okay. I I think as soon as you start measuring stuff in terms of how many dollars per day. You're using money as a index or way of measuring things, and mm. that's one projection of ways of looking mm. at life. And like we just said, there'd be some countries where you might have two or three pounds a day to live off, which is above your index, your number, but yeah. it doesn't mm. necessarily help compare, and you will miss some bits. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's why it's important to talk about malnutrition mm. first, right? So I, and hopefully we are covering enough that, that the picture does start to come together, despite the fact that all of these are imperfect measures. Cool. Shall we move on to violence? Yes, go cool. on. Let, let's have some violence, yes. <laughs> so uh, what's your impression of... Um, uh, how violent uh, our society is. I think these days it's probably a lot less violent than it used to be. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't remember how he's measuring violence. Does he measure it in terms of wars and uh, that kind of thing? Uh, or? Well, he's got a number of measures. So, uh, And the first thing he talks about is the homicide rate. Okay, so, yeah. So he says that's gone way down, doesn't he? Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let, let Fran answer the question, then I'll uh, then I'll give you some stats. Okay. It's going to depend how we're measuring things. We've certainly got a variety of ways of killing people that we didn't have before, including various uh, biological weapons and big rockets and things. Uh, I, I do wonder about stats. In the, but having just moved away from London last year, where they kept saying, oh, knife crimes are epidemic levels in London. Actually, there's knife crime going on in other parts of the UK, and it turns out there has been for quite a long time. But mm. I don't know any accurate statistics on this. So, yeah. yeah. Mm, we can be violent differently, and we've got access to a variety of weapons we didn't have access to years ago. Don't know. Mm-hmm. No idea. I think knife crime is is a really interesting example of of how um, sensitive we are to some topics. So, obviously, people being killed is a really bad thing, and reducing the number of people being killed is a really good thing, and that's what's been happening over the course of the decades in terms of levels of knife crime and gun crime. Um but you're much more likely to get killed by being run over or being in a car accident in London than you are by being stabbed. Now, um, maybe that's a maybe that's a stupid thing to say because it depends what what uh, community you're living in um, whether that statistic is really true. Um, um, but the same kind of thing applies to terrorism. The chances of being killed by terrorism are low compared with lots of normal ways of dying, like um, falling down the stairs. Yeah, he talks about that. In fact, he uses that exact stat, doesn't he? That, Does he? Uh, yes, he, so he says falling down the stairs is one of the things that people do quite frequently <laughs> and break their neck or something. <laughs> but actually, yes, the chances of being killed in a terrorist attack are really small. Mm. Um, That's not to say we shouldn't try and stop it. It's just to say let's let's also care about other tragic ways that people die mm. especially car accidents yeah preventable car accidents so homicide rate um, this is number of homicides per 100,000 people mm. and he's got stats starting from 1200 AD wow okay so in 1200 AD it was around 32 murders annually per 100,000 people. I wonder if crimes were defined different ways and if it didn't get counted unless you were a rich, important person. Who knows? Yeah, I should Maybe. think it prob- that was probably the case, yeah. Maybe. So we don't know how reliable these stats but are. But they're numbers. So let's go with the numbers he's got. See what we think. Um, this is in Europe. Did I say this was in Europe? No. 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 This is in Europe. Um, and then uh, it... it, it drifts down very fast until about 1700 at which point it gets to about three three homicides per year per 100,000 people in about 1700 mm. um, and then in in 2000 it's down to well below one I wonder whether I can find the actual numbers I can't immediately find the actual numbers so now chance of being murdered as an average person massively down. And that's interesting given that the fact that the population has is bigger. Yeah. You'd expect that stat to be flat or higher, but actually it's gone way down. Yeah. You'd think that people would have kind of less 
concern for human life because there's more humans yeah, in the face. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that maybe people um, value value human life more. Um, I mean, I don't, I can't remember whether he's incl- including things like duels in those homicide figures. I don't know. Because um, there was a lot of that going on. Um, and I guess maybe life life is held in higher esteem than it used to be. Um, could we also take policing and law and order into that figure as well, in that people are less likely to do something because they might go to jail? I mean... Because 1,200, you, yeah. you just... You wouldn't go to jail, would you? You, you know, people probably wouldn't find out. Um, do he, does he also talk about, in the medieval period, the types of... Um, Punishments, crime and punishment. Yeah. Well, yeah, so he talks about the violent, how violent is society. Yes. He talks about how it's total, it was totally normal um, for you to walk past in the town square someone who's being tortured for yeah. some kind of crime and also people who've been killed and mutilated and left lying around. Heads on spikes as well and things to put people yeah. off. I, some of the things were absolutely horrendous. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Did. Yeah. He also talks about witch burning. Yep. He said, "What does he say?" He says, um, "Over the over two centuries, French and German witch hunters killed between sixty thousand and one hundred thousand women for witchcraft." That is insane. Well, see, there maybe what's happened is people were being murdered, and it was not counted as murder because it was counted as being useful to society. So we yeah, might have just maybe. moved the goalposts. Right, but I think I would suspect that that kind of uh, misclassification was more common in the a long time ago times yeah, than more all right. recently. Yeah, all right. Might fewer <laughs> jobs for psychopaths. Train of thought wasn't going to go anywhere useful, to be honest. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what are you supposed to do if you were just born to be an executioner? These Play days? computer games and leave everyone yes. else alone. Honestly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's the real reason for reduction in violence. They yeah, don't go outdoors. Yep. England abolished public hangings in 1783. Oh, okay, public hangings. And, yeah. Yes, yeah. and after 1834, corpses were no longer displayed on gibbets. 1834. See, that mm-hmm. seems like quite a recent time, really. In 1822, there were almost 300 capital offences. I guess this is still in England. Yeah. Including forgery, shoplifting, pickpocketing, sheep theft. Sheep theft? Being, get this, being in the company of gypsies for a month. A month. For a month. So for 28 days, you're okay. Yeah, but then... Uh, if you're a gypsy, month, you're cap- just not okay, offense. but that's no. a different story. Presumably, yeah. Impersonating a Chelsea pensioner. Yeah, actually, that's still quite a serious offence. Yeah, but it's not. It's not a capital offence anymore, no. So, uh, in, by 1861, there were only five capital offences. Before that, there were, what did I say, 300. Right. So, he's, t- he's telling a story over the last 200 years of a lot fewer people being killed and tortured and mutilated by the state. Yes. And he's arguing that that's part of why our society is less violent in general. Those things have definitely got better. He does also talk about torture, and that torture's mm. made a resurgence of late, what do they call it in the United States? Enhanced interrogation. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really talk about it too much, but I'll offer a statistic that torture doesn't get you the, the um, 
the results you want. Because mm. once you hurt people so badly, they'll tell you whatever you want to know. Um, even if it's wrong. Um, so yeah, enhanced interrogation is he calls it, which which is what also what I call it because that's what they call it. <laughs> it's a thing. So, so he talks about wars as well. So we we talked about like state mutilation and killing and mm. m- and murder, um, but also uh, wars. Uh, it's it's really hard to take in some of these numbers. So. When Napoleon retreated from Moscow in 1812, more than 400,000 of his 500,000 strong army died from pneumonia, typhus, and dysentery. Isn't that insane? Um, also, the um, the Thirty Years' War I heard on the radio the other day wiped out a third of the population of Germany. Yeah, that is mad as well. So I, we just don't I, hear I about. I hardly even things. heard of that. I'd heard of the Thirty Years' War, but I didn't know it was that devastating oh. in terms of population loss. And the Mongol invasions of the 13th century might have killed 40 million people in an era when the world population was below 500 million. Yeah. So it's one in eight people in the world yeah. might have been killed in the Mongol invasions. Yes. So there used to be a great deal of war and a great deal of death during war. But there hasn't been a world war since the Second World War. There have been yeah. there have been some serious conflicts since then. Um, so Korean War, Vietnam, um, the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, which I remember during the nineteen nineties. That's the thing that always drags me back when I say, "Oh, the nineties were great," and then I think, <laughs> "No, actually, they weren't that great," because that happened. There was there was the genocide in Rwanda, and there's the the ongoing war. Uh, in Democratic Republic of Congo, yep. and um, there's the war in Syria at the moment, which have which have caused huge numbers of deaths. Yeah. Um, but those numbers, in ter- you know, compared with something like that one in eight figure, they're smaller. A lot smaller. Yeah. There have been some you know, outbursts right. of genocide in various places as well. So, yeah. Yeah. which will have wiped out most of certain parts of populations. I mean, if we try and list everything where yeah. there's been mass slaughter, whether it's in the name of war or some kind of Something political else. cleansing or whatever, it's it's going to be a long list. One thing he does yeah. talk about, which, which I was interested by, was the amount of ethnic cleansing and genocide in, in the Old Testament. Mm. Um which was quite a shock, actually. But but then I thought, yeah, well, maybe it isn't that much of a bit. shock because there is there is quite a lot of bloodletting in the Old Testament. But yeah, he actually he uses Jesus uh, like the cruci- a crucified Christ as an example of the kind of level of violence in society that that's like a religious symbol. Yeah, but it was really the the, the Old Testament uh, the example when Moses called for ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Some of his well, that, some of his soldiers came back from where they were supposed to be doing yeah. some ethnic cleansing. He said, "No, no, go back and kill the women and children as well. Go on, finish the job that I've told you to do." And they yeah, sort and of trudged back to go and finish off what they were supposed to do. It's, yeah, it's God who gets angry that they didn't they didn't kill all the oh, women, the Hittites, and the the others. Oh, I can't remember the names of them, but uh, the ones who are not Jewish, presumably. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. and then the Joshua. Gen- you can read yeah. about all that in Joshua if you like. Is it all in Joshua? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think he starts there in terms of like recorded 
instances of um, of mass slaughter. Um, yeah, that's my li- my least favourite book. Of the so book. things have definitely got better in terms of mass slaughter. I find judges quite difficult as well. There's there's some unpleasantness in there too. So yeah, avoid <laughs> books beginning of J, and you might be all right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hmm. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's next? So yeah, God. God seems a bit nicer since then. Yeah, touchy feely. Okay, so now we get onto the controversial area, and we, this might be the last chapter we talk about in detail. Okay. Because I think I think we've covered uh, enough to start having a debate. But the the thing that we're probably going to have the most debate about, I suspect, is the environment. Mm. So. Um, uh, the first graph that he that that popped out for me was pollution in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is emissions of the six leading air pollutants as a percentage of nineteen seventy emissions. What does that mean? Uh, I th- oh, I see what I mean. It yeah. means how much we how much we emitted in nineteen seventy is one hundred percent. Yep, uh, and then it's gone down since then. So it, so the graph starts in nineteen seventy. And since 1970, it it fairly smoothly goes down, and in 2015, it's about 37 percent. So we we there is in in the UK there is about 37 percent of the pollutants being emitted as there were in 1970. Of, of the six yeah. top pollutants from the 1970s, yes. Um, Does I, well, that it's from the allow six leading air pollutants? I don't know whether they're the leading ones in the seventies or the leading ones now. What the leading ones, leading in the ones now doing that the ones in the seventies didn't do, and vice he versa. Doesn't, yeah, he doesn't address that. <laughs> so he's only comparing <laughs> stuff that you can you can compare against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, yeah I don't know. Yeah, yeah. He definitely doesn't address that. So we're belching out less of some pollutants. Yes. Mm. Okay. Ones that we were, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and to be fair, um, air quality, uh, as perceived by how far you can see, in London, has uh, improved. He also talks about that in terms of the smog in London being devastating. Mm. It killed a lot of people. Mm, it did, and yeah, yet that mm. you can't see all pollution going and spe- there's stats about asthma being on the rise. But I know full mm. well we diagnose things better than we used to. So, mm. yeah, yeah, okay. We some of the smogs have stopped, but there's other things going on as well. And yeah, I I don't imagine that statistic tells a full story. Some things have got better. Certainly, mm. that tells me. Mm. Not hundred percent convinced. I've been a hundred percent convinced by some things so far. I've got <laughs> a couple of ticks, question mark, and some crosses on my notes. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> so um, yeah, he he talk, again. I think his story is really that um, being richer is better than being poorer, and on average, people are getting richer. Okay, that's how I would summarize his his story. So in the in the pollution air pollution terms, he wants to point out essentially that rich countries are doing well. So he says countries such as Australia, Germany, and Sweden come out on top for the um, um, level of uh, environmental performance, um, whereas poorer countries like Haiti, Sudan, Liberia, Somalia come out at the bottom. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would dispute that. Mm. 
I think one problem with that is if countries are exporting their polluting to poorer countries. Ex still, can you explain what that means? So I mean making, basically um, still needing to do a lot of polluting in order to be prosperous, but just making that pollution happen in another country. Oh, okay. So Put all your plastic waste yeah. on a container ship and send it halfway around the world. Get rid of all your dodgy chemicals by putting them in concrete and burying them in someone else's backyard and so on. I was also thinking of maybe building a factory that's really polluting in another country so yeah. you get round polluting yeah. laws. Yeah, absolutely. Something like absolutely that as well, yeah. Mm. I think there's a story there. Yeah. He, he claims that um, having a, well, having an educated and concerned population makes improvements. For it. So, for example, the Great Smog of 1952 drove British politicians to pass a Clean Air Act in 1956. Yes. Which is why it got better, partly. It did. Um, but what I think what we're seeing there is a pattern... A pattern is emerging of when things get really bad, then politicians will do something about it. But if things aren't that bad, they won't do anything because mm -hmm. they want the populace to be voting for them. Which gives you a problem with very long-running problems yes. that only get visibly bad after you're all already dead. Which, which Sir David Attenborough has talked about recently and said that limited-term governments cannot deal with climate change. Okay, so this podcast got really long. So the, the remaining, I, I'm going to finish with one quote. No, two quotes from him. So the, I think the other chapters are also really important, but I don't think we want to talk about them. So we've got literacy. He talks about a huge increase in literacy yeah, around the world. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yep. He talks about freedom, the number of countries that are at least claim to be democracies and really are uh, democratic. It's massively increased from zero in 1900 to lots. And he talks about equality... Um, in particular, equality for women, equality for gay people, and equality in terms of racial equality, um, and gives statistics about that. Then he talks about child labour, and he talks about how important that is I've for got a point all on, the other stuff. I've got a point better. on child labour. Okay, okay, so what should we do? Let's do your child labour point, okay. then I'll read you one quote from the environment, then I'll read you his final quote, and then we'll have a big debate. Okay, okay. So, so my point on child labour is he talks about how child labour existed and was prevalent before the time period, which is, which is the Industrial Revolution, where mm. we mostly think that child labour was a terribly bad thing. Mm. Uh, but mm. it existed before then, and it, mm. it's been prevalent throughout human society in that the Romans and the Greeks put children to work. Those are two examples, but also successive societies put children to work. I think that the big difference during the Industrial Revolution is that during those earlier periods, children were, weren't working with incredibly dangerous machinery or having to crawl down chimneys. So although he says that you know, the Industrial Revolution wasn't that bad for kids, it was actually it was terrible in terms of the fact that they're having to work stuff and, um, you know, they would die in quite horrible ways. Whereas, you know, if you're a kid and you're just working for your parents on the farm, you're getting exercise, you're getting fed, you, you, won't probably, you probably won't get much of an education, um, but you've probably got quite a good life there. Whereas in the Industrial Revolution, you might be subject to child abuse and malnutrition and, or get torn apart in a factory by a piece of machinery or get stuck down a chimney and suffocate. 
So that's my issue with with his sort of pointing out the Industrial Revolution wasn't all bad because it mm. was for kids, for child labour in particular. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, yeah, the, we this image of children used essentially as slaves. Yes. Um, is is awful, and and, and I, we have this image that that's not what it's like when you work with your parents on the farm, which is probably right. But it certainly does mean that you don't get an education, and therefore, the only thing that you can do when you grow is up work is on the a same farm. thing. Yeah, yeah, and 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 be at risk of crop failure and starvation. And that, yeah, you know, and that was the case for you know for families who lived out in the countryside. That's what you did, is you did what your parents do, unless you got educated and you moved away, mm. um, which is difficult to do if you've got to work on the farm all day. And there's no option. For, for, to do anything else because your family won't be able to eat if you're not yeah helping. so then um, we, we can tie that into the whole artificial fertilizer thing whereby farmers can suddenly grow more crops quickly so they can hire farmhands and the kids can go to school and that's when yeah, things start to change so he gave a really interesting example perhaps I will just go into it I know we've gone on too long sorry listener um, the uh, he talks. This I think this is really interesting. He talks about a study in Ecuador um, where they they kind of it was almost like a test case of how what's going to what are parents' attitudes to children's mm. education and child labour. Um, he says families who won a lottery received a cash transfer equivalent to seven percent of monthly expenditures. The cash was less than a fifth of the income the average child labourer received in the labour market, so they lost substantial money if the children stopped working. But even so, there was a decline of 40% among those who won. The impact was biggest among the poorest. Apparently the question is not whether a family can make more money, but whether they can afford to forego it. So his point yeah. is, when families have the chance to send their kids to school and not have them work, they take the chance, even if they'd be richer the other way around. Now he doesn't say that's because people are beautiful, nice people. He says that's because they've got a better chance of earning more money yeah. if they get an education. Yeah. Uh, but either way, uh, the, it has these these uh, um, effects that feed into the other things we've been talking about. A better education leads to um, less chance of starvation and so on. So on the on the subject of um, equality, um. I don't think things have got that much better in the last 20 years. I think sometimes they're going backwards in terms of like wage equality, gender equality. Um, uh, I watched a movie called Hustlers the other day with Jennifer Lopez and she was part of the halftime show at the Super Bowl the other day. And when we were watching Hustlers, my wife said, yeah, she looks really great. Um, I can't imagine anyone taking issue with what she's wearing. And I said, you haven't been looking at the internet much lately, have you? And honestly, the comments after that Super Bowl show were unbelievable. Just the double standards that people still have about the way that women, you know, women in a, in a halftime show at the Super Bowl who were entertaining people who weren't even scantily clad and yet people were complaining about it. Um, and other people were saying, yes, but last year you did see that Adam Lambert, who's the lead singer from Maroon 5, I think, had his shirt off. And nobody complained about that. So there is still a huge double standard and a great deal of prejudice and sort of misogyny towards. And maybe that's because 
more people are standing up to say, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. So the argument is more public than it used to be. But I, I don't think that things are getting that much better. That makes me sad. I certainly think over maybe the last five years we hear a lot more voices. We certainly do hear a lot more about things. it, yeah. I think there's a yeah. worrying propensity on certain news programmes as well to keep doing this balance thing. So when there's something one way, they do something the other way to avoid actually stating an opinion or doing any investigative journalism. And that yes. that gives us a way for things to end up getting worse. Um, one of the quotes you pulled out from the book I've deliberately not read was you mentioned about educated and concerned population makes a difference. Some of that education might come from schools or families, but it, it has got to come from someone investigating and reporting some statistics properly and mm. conveying mm. that properly. And I've seen less and less of that happening in, the, in any of the so-called news outlets. And then people are starting to be stuck in their own little bubbles on social media. And I think the channels for sharing information are becoming um, too disparate and there's not enough information coming through. If that education isn't working, then we're screwed. That's what I think. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's it's a worrying trend that I would talk about a bit more now that, that again, doesn't get addressed in the book. And that's a trend towards intolerance. Um, and greed amongst people who are already rich, who just want to be richer at any cost. Um, and we're seeing that with, you know, although the environment is improving, um, there are huge barriers to it improving more by people who have no vested interest to make it any better. Because, you know, they're old, let's face it, old white men who want to be richer and don't see anything beyond their own lifespan. So I want to make a slight challenge to that. So okay. Here's uh, Johan's point about... Um, that's his name, yeah. Um, about... Uh, sorry, Johan. <laughs> I know you're listening. Um, uh, Johan's point about um, child labour is that... It, it, child labour was always going on, but then people noticed it and, and, and became upset about mm. it in, in, say, 1900-type time. And I think he has got a point there that... Um, some of the things you're talking about are things that always went on and were accepted or even considered right. You know, like, for example, some people being incredibly rich and exploiting their mm. workers. Um, or indeed, some people in positions of power, like sexually abusing people around them and um, being able to do anything they like. So and in at least some of those cases, I think that What's happened is we've we've started to see some of those things either just find out that they were happening or start to consider them unacceptable when previously they were just considered normal. Mm. Um, so some of our kind of feeling appalled about stuff is actually because we've woken up to it. And I'm not saying that's bad, that's good. Yeah, um, it is but good. But it could yeah. still be part of a story of things getting better, maybe. Yeah, but yes. because some of the information's coming out, uh, maybe, maybe there's a bigger picture there of... Some of the issues you've just touched on, maybe it's beyond education and good news channels informing people. But yeah, actually people standing up against society and going, no, you can't 
sexually abuse the children that go to your school just because it's a posh school and it happened to you. We're not going to stand for this anymore. So mm. it is about people learning stuff and then taking arms and going, I'm not standing for this anymore. So mm. twofold mm. thing, perhaps. Just because you're, you're yeah. allegedly more important than me, I'm not standing for it. I don't care. You're wrong. Mm. Mm. And some of... A slight challenge to what you were saying, Fran, as well before. Some of this sense that we're hearing uh, ugly voices is just because people are talking to each other more. We're hearing more voices, I argue. Now, that doesn't mean that I feel really happy about all these horrible things that are being said or that I that I don't think... You know, I do think there have been uh, negative political changes in the last five years that have made people feel much more comfortable saying horrible things about people. Maybe it's maybe it is on a trajectory somewhere good. I suppose thinking about it, my parents' generation tended to get their news from their favoured newspaper, which was mm-hmm. frankly just completely full of propaganda and the same as all the mm-hmm. social media bubbles where you're just following the people you want to hear. So if I can hear people who are saying things that I think are really hateful and incitements to riot and all the rest of it. Yeah, okay, maybe maybe I'm hearing more voices and I'm in less of a bubble. Several other people are still stuck in their own bubbles and their choices of propaganda, though. Mm. But again, back to the education and some kind of moral fibre to say, hang on, that's wrong and I'm not standing for it, I'm going to take action and do something. So I think, so, I think one of the things that has worried me over the last five to ten years is the normalisation of hate speech. Mm-hmm. Um, in which five to ten years ago, if we'd heard someone like Nigel Farage or Tommy Robinson say the kind of things that they say, we would have been outraged by it. But now, we're not. And that's because they have normalised it. They and the people that that are the puppet masters for them, people like Steve Bannon, have normalised the hate speech of people like Farage and Donald Trump, etc., etc., uh, so that when he says something outrageous, we kind of shrug and think, oh, it's just Donald Trump. But actually, the stuff that he says is really hateful and nasty. And causes and violence. And causes violence and discord and causes people to think that there's no hope, when in fact there is hope. Um, that That's a worry. And, you know, we've seen recently in this country that normalisation of hate speech reach, you know, stuff that's, that's happened over here. With uh, you know elections and voting and that kind of thing has caused mm. things to happen, mm. um, and he doesn't talk about that uh, in his book at all. Really, in in the fact that a lot you know with a free society where people are free to say what they want, um, and and of course we are free to call them out on it if we don't like it, but they are free to say what they want. That means that they can say horrible, nasty things. And yeah. people can listen to them. People can hear them. Whereas maybe back in the in the olden days, uh, they wouldn't be allowed to say them. They would have been thrown in jail and left to rot somewhere. I wonder whether that's true. I'm trying to think what kind of people published pamphlets that were considered subversive. Oh, people, I, I suppose. Yeah, I was going to then say. I suppose people tried to publish the Bible in a language people could speak and read, and they. It didn't always pan out very well for them, but the Bible is subversive, so that's that's one thing. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think this is a perennial thing that happens that people say things people don't always agree with. And the only way to counter the the ungrounded stuff is with some actual information and discuss it, which is why I guess we've taken the format tonight of looking at a book and trying to talk through some of the stats in it. Yeah. The way yeah. to counter this isn't say you're not allowed to say something I disagree with, because then that's just going to push mm. people underground or make people angry. It's go, well, yep. okay, let's talk this through. That makes no sense. So that is that is the biggest problem, I think, is that we have we have people saying outrageous things and being divisive and there's nobody there to call them out on it publicly right which is that's a problem why we need to try and speak up and find ways of seeping information into every single way that we can yeah it is it is it's a very strange world we live in i feel like what we should do on this topic is we should have we should do a podcast another time on the future of social media that's a good one and we should we should try and Imagine if everything went really well, how social media or just the media would work in the future, um, and where people have good conversations. But I think if we try and do it now, we'll probably. I don't think we should do it now. No, this is we've been doing this for an hour and twenty minutes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we've I've skirted over, (laughs) and I'm really regretting it. But I skirted over the the stuff about equality, in particular the dramatic change in attitudes towards homosexuality. Mm. So I wanted to very quickly, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't what I said I'd do, this is an extra bit I'm having. <laughs> um, You're making the rules, man. Um, so in uh, 2006, 60% of Americans opposed same-sex marriage. Indeed, in his 2008 presidential campaign, Barack Obama said that marriage is between a man and a woman and that he opposed gay marriage. Mm. But opinion shifted dramatically. In 2014, 60% of Americans... What does that say? I don't know. Can't see from in, here. No. In 2014, 60% of Americans opposed gay marriage, and today, 60% approve of it. Right. So that's a big turnaround. That, I think that must that must mean 2006, and then 2014, 60% approve Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. Obama changed his mind in 2012, and George W. Bush, who got elected on the back of some anti-gay policies, mm-hmm. George W. Bush offered to officiate at at least one gay wedding. I didn't know that. No. <laughs> Good old George, George W. George W. But did he know where he was when he was doing it, though? You know. So that's in America, but I think that's a pattern that um, we've seen in the UK as well. Um, that the attitude went from like enforced chemical castration really not that long ago no not that long ago no it's a post-war alan turing is is a big example of good example of enforced chemical castration um towards the point of saying you know okay yeah um yeah it's and there are still countries where it's illegal and in fact you can be killed for it yeah yeah, but the picture has changed globally. Yes, um, just it just hasn't finished changing. It hasn't yet. finished changing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to read you a quote just before the debate starts. Um, the uh, thing about the environment, which I think sums up Johan's um, point. So you might this would be an interesting thing to use. He does talk about climate change, by the way, but he basically says it'll be fine because we'll come up with technology to fix mm. it. But, but here's, his, here's his sentence, which I think sums up where he's coming from. Um, the worst environmental problems in poor countries stem not from technology and affluence, but from the lack of technology and affluence. Mm. 
For lack of electricity, gas and paraffin, billions of people have to cook by burning wood, dung, charcoal and coal in open fires or simple stoves. And he goes on and on. But to me, that sums up his position. He's basically saying, let's make everyone richer um, because that makes everything better. Hmm. Okay. So they won't burn wood, dung or charcoal anymore. Yeah. So we'll connect them up to the national grid and they'll... They'll use electric stove. Yeah. yeah. But in, but on a wider point than that, he's basically saying everything's better when everyone is richer and, furthermore, people are getting richer. I would say that's that was how I would summarise his point. Yes. People are getting richer apart from the people who have to go to food banks. How do you make everyone richer? I don't understand how money works. But that's a very long discussion, I think. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that an hour and a half in. Well, I, I think you, one ways that you could measure it would be um, lev, level of malnourishment and level of diarrhoea or something like that, right? So those are ways, I think, that I, I think those are useful yeah, measures okay. of whether people it's, are It are sounds to off. me like you're saying he's, he's doing a lot of stats in the book in terms of money and bit, being very money-central about things. But mm. maybe I'm misunderstanding. Was you just saying that people are healthier and not dying of pre- preventable diseases and have got enough food? Yeah, that kind of food, shelter, medicine, yeah. safety. Well, I think thing. number Basic one, needs. number one, he is really keen on statistics, and and often money is is a, the only measure you've got. But number two, he is he's definitely a capitalist. Right. Yeah. Um, he he talks about unregulated markets being part of what um, what helps. Not unregulated, but um, he talks about. He goes through quite a long example in China where there was a very strongly controlled economy, and then one town was allowed to um, run more like a market system, and it did really well, and then it spread around other places. Oh, I mean, something he's not going to have any stats on in his book is what happens when you abolish money and you have Star Trek and replicators and transporters instead. So I'm, I think well, he's just yeah. not imagining enough. Well, I think there so you that, have okay, unlimited so this is where we tea start the debate. Grey hot. Oh, <laughs> see, this is what the kids want. <laughs> so this, this this is where our conversation needs to go now. What what's the future like? Mm. Um, and that does that involve uh, technology increasingly making things better? Does it involve environmental collapse? So the whole thing's irrelevant. Mm. So the technology thing is interesting because to me it seems that there's a tight coupling between the people who are doing the polluting and the people who can actually make things better. And they seem to be the same people. Um, And there is nothing in the interest of the people who are doing the polluting to do any less polluting at the moment. There's nothing compelling them to make things better. There's no one saying to them, you have to make things better, apart from Greta Thunberg. Um, So I think Johan would argue that that the... The countries that have done a lot of polluting in the past, like the UK, have have now progressed to technologies that are genuinely less polluting and still produce the uh, uh, a lot of energy. Yeah. So he talks about the, you know, the six polluting gases, but presumably there's stuff that we're produ- producing now that wasn't being produced in the 1970s. And there might might yeah. be stuff that we don't know about the impact of. I mean, people were quite happy to use asbestos for years, and then went away. Hang on, actually, whoops. So there's going yes. to be stuff we don't know now about some of the stuff we're doing now. You know, we've, we've finally discovered that diesel fumes are really bad for you. 
In fact, we knew that already, right? Yes, we did. Um, but we didn't like to talk about it, and now we are talking about now it. Now we are talking about it, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and we might find that bat- the batteries that we're making now... I mean, people are already worried about that. So there's an issue with the batteries in that mm. there's, only, there's only so much cobalt in the world. Most of it's in Africa, and quite a lot of it exists in countries where civil war exists and you know there's some nasty regimes going on and it's difficult to know when you buy your electric car where the cobalt has come from um so that's a problem and there are a variety mm-hmm. of other components in there and inside loads of our computers that we can't don't manage to recycle properly and some Deadly poisonous stuff in there. Yes, there's some nasty stuff in there. And yeah. your phones, which are designed to break every couple of years, or maybe that's just me. No, I don't <laughs> think it's not just you. I dropped mine the other day. Um, so, so yeah, so so so, yeah. so so just to sum up what I was what I was saying there, I I think that the people who are doing the polluting are quite tightly linked in with trying to fix the problem. Uh, at the moment, there isn't sufficient panic for them to fix it even though we know things are quite bad so Fran what's the future like is it going to be are we all just going to be is it going to be like Wall-E where we're sitting in little pods and <laughs> I don't know maybe we'll just all like upload ourselves to the cloud and won't have a physical existence and stop polluting things I don't know where that so, cloud uh, is or maybe Google. maybe we'll have small subsets of people who are completely disenfranchised, who are living on barges and do make pizza ovens and burn things to cook food, but learn to grow their own food and move away from, aren't part of the system and then the whole system are collapsed and then they'll come out Walking Dead style through the zombie apocalypse and rebuild. Or maybe we will end up with Star Trek and technology will help us make things better and abolish money and capitalism. So, three options. I suspect one so, of the last yeah. two, rather than us ending up with a non-physical <laughs> existence in some cloud run by the machines. But who knows? So, doesn't and doesn't does the um, doesn't the Star Trek scenario come about because of a, a terrible third world war? Yeah, well, you've got to bear in mind that it's fiction, it? so it might not happen yeah, okay. like that. But yeah, it might that, not that happen does like seem that, yeah. statistically likely. Yes, or a possibility. So does AI help us? So, does AI help us with this? Um, this future world. It depends. I th- I think something you can learn from AI is some of the things we're doing wrong. The number of incidents of AI being really racist, really sexist, is calling us out on how we're behaving. So maybe we'll Ooh, learn AI from the machines. AI is a kind machines. of black mirror. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, it uses a whole lot of energy. Yeah, that's not good. AI. It doesn't have to. You don't have to use a deep neural network for things you can do with linear regression. So yeah, basically, you try and optimise your code or do the simplest thing that works and tells you what you need rather than making this huge Baroque system that sends things via virtual machines and Docker images to printers and <laughs> whatever it is you're doing, just say hello or cat. I mean, just get a grip, guys. <laughs> Hello, cat. Hello, cat. Oh, sorry, that was a dog. <laughs> Never mind. Bad AI, bad. <laughs> Get down AI. The AI's done a mess on the floor again. It's all right. Robot vacuum cleaner will clean it up in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, okay. I'm going to give Johan uh, not maybe not the last word, but the last chance to to make his point, mm. and then I'm going to let you conclude. Okay. So here's here's a paragraph which I think sums up um, hopefully an optimistic message for listener. If listener tuned in for some optimism, um, this is in his chapter on the next generation. Despite what we see in the news, the conditions of childhood have never been as beneficial as they are today. Consider a ten-year-old girl two hundred years ago. Wherever she, wherever she had been born, she could not have expected to live longer than around 30 years. She would have had five to seven siblings, and she would already have seen at least one or two of them die. The chance that her mother would survive childbirth was smaller than the chance that the present generation will meet their grandparents. She would have been brought up under conditions we consider unbearable. Her family would not have had access to clean water or a toilet. Chances are that they did not even have a latrine. They would have used a ditch or gone behind a tree. Her surroundings would have been littered with garbage and feces, contaminating water sources and devastating lives. Her parents would live in constant fear that she would be taken away by tuberculosis, cholera, smallpox or measles, or starvation. This little girl would have been stunted, skinny and short, since she lived in a world of chronic undernourishment and recurring famine, where people did not get the energy to grow and function properly. This would have halted her brain's proper development. She would not receive any schooling and would never learn to read or write. She would certainly have been put to work at an early age, perhaps as a domestic servant in another family's home. In any case, she would have been blocked from almost all occupations and would be considered the property of her father until he married her away, at which point ownership would pass to her husband. If he beat her or raped her, there was no law banning it. She would not be able to organise politically to change this, since she would not have the right to vote nor stand for election, no matter where she lived. If she wanted to leave it all behind, there were no cars, buses or planes. The first trains existed, but only to transport coal in parts of England and Wales. She lived in a brutal world where the risk of a violent death was almost three times higher than today. England had 300 capital offences on the books, and she would still see corpses displayed on gibbets. Torture and slavery were still common. Peacetime was an intermission between wars. The world had just gone through the Napoleonic Wars with the whole of Europe and many other parts of the world a battlefield. Any security you had built up could be torn apart in a few days. And he goes on to say what's changed since then. So my summing up of that it's sobering, is, isn't it? It is terrible. But my summing up of that is, is that I feel that at the moment that world that people fought and died for, our, our modern world, is at risk. And we need to fight for it if we want to keep it. That's my summing up. Ooh. Now, what what do I think? I'd, some some things have got better in the sense that we understand, say, the sanitation point. That's hard to disagree with. And that's partly about education and spreading mm. information. But part of the Extinction Rebellion movement at the moment is also part of speaking up about things and fighting for things. So, so I said at the beginning, it depends, and I can see things on both sides of this. Whatever's going on, we can't be complacent. If you see something that's heading in a illogical directory, like anti-vaxxers and measles coming back, or on a potential... For example, like we said about electric cars 
and the batteries, then we should query that, we should ask for information, we should dig until we find it, and we should talk to each other. Mm. No complacency. Yeah, I think that's it, that I absolutely agree with that, yeah. yeah. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Indeed, yes. Yeah, I certainly think, uh, when you read that, it's so sobering. You think, you know, I think about my life, and I think how safe I've been, how I've had enough food every day of my yep. life and the the privilege I've had in terms of education and and the way people treat me with respect and so on um it's absolutely worth something fighting for everyone in the world to it have. really is yeah and there are people who want to take that away from us and we know who they are <laughs> <laughs> so I want to say thank you to Fran for joining us in this Longest podcast ever. Yeah, this is a record. Get him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I want to say thank you to you, Andy. I hope that you enjoyed that, listen. It was a bit different. It was different, but we said yeah. we were going to do it, and we did. Yeah. But yeah, hope versus, what was it? Hope versus, hope versus hate. hate. In a grudge match for the uh, for the ages, that was. <laughs> I think hope is winning. Uh, Which is not cool. what well, maybe, I thought I was going to say at the end of this podcast. Right. Yeah. Maybe we'll get together sometime for a future of the media, future of social media type thing. Yeah, I think we think we should do that. Yeah. Sounds well, good. We'll, yeah, we'll get back on track next week. I've got loads of films to talk about. Cool. More <laughs> movie stuff. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much, and see you next. Yeah. Time. Cheers. Thanks. Bye.